If you are worshiping with us for what is one of the first times this morning, another word of welcome to you. We are so glad that you are here. If you are a visitor in our midst, or if you haven't been here in a while, you need to know that we are picking up in a conversation about a new vision statement that the session has discerned for this body, a community of faith. That vision statement is trusting all belong to God, living like we belong to one another. Over the last four weeks, we have focused on the first half of that statement, trusting all belong to God. And this morning, we turn our attention to the second half, living like we belong to one another, exploring how that claim that all of us belong to God shapes the kind of community and relationships that God desires most for us. I have to admit, as I was thinking about you all and thinking about the text this week, how fitting it seemed that we would begin a conversation on living like we belong to one another on the weekend of a good old-fashioned football rivalry. Um, so depending on how you feel about the outcome of yesterday's game, you may or may not be reconsidering all belong to God. I will let you decide and work that out for yourself. We also continue that conversation, as Kathy said, on World Communion Sunday. We remember our unity and our connection to Christians around the world who celebrate this meal in Christ and give thanks for the connection that we have, brothers and sisters, as a part of God's human family. So thinking about those things, listen now for a word from the Lord from Genesis chapter 4. Now the man knew his wife Eve. And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. Now she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a tiller of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel, for his part, brought the firstlings of his flock, their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was angry, and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain said to his brother Abel, let us go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother? Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it will no longer yield to you its strength. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Today you have driven me away from the soil and I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and anyone who meets me will kill me. The Lord said to him, Not so. Whoever kills Cain will suffer a sevenfold vengeance. And the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one would harm him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord 
and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May God add insight and understanding into God's holy word this day. Throughout history, sibling rivalries have dotted the human landscape in all shapes and forms. I did a little research this week and came across just a couple. Cleopatra and Ptolemy, the Andrews sisters, George and Ira Gershwin, and of course, Emily, Charlotte, and Anne Bronte, but not to be left out, Venus and Serena Williams, or Eli and Peyton Manning. The truth is, no matter how far you go back in history, it really is hard to find a family with more than one child that doesn't know the trials of a good old-fashioned sibling rivalry in one form or another. Six months after her baby brother was born, my best friend announced at the age of three that she would like to learn to drive. Confused, her mother said, well, that's interesting, how come? She said, you know, it's been nice having a baby brother, but it's time for him to go back where he came from. I'd like to drive him there. <laughs> In my house growing up, there was plenty of sibling rivalry to go around. There was a time when my parents put duct tape down the center seat of the Dodge minivan to prevent any arguing that would ensue if my sister or I would cross over and touch the other person's side. That worked for a bit until the complaint escalated from she's touching me to she's breathing on me. <laughs> My mother said there really was not much she could do to divide the oxygen in the minivan. I did tell her that I was going to share that story with you all this morning and she said, well, do you remember the schedule? And I said, no. She said, well, the competition between the two of you started driving me so crazy about who was to sit where in the car that I actually created a calendar for whose turn it was to sit in what seat. On Mondays, it was you in the back and your sister in the front and vice versa, and we traded days. We may or may not also have had a calendar to say table grace, among other things. But the truth is, sibling rivalry can also get serious. It can cut deep, it can last a lifetime. In his novel, East of Eden, John Steinbeck writes about the intertwined destinies of two families, the Trasks and the Hamiltons, whose members helplessly reenact the pain of sibling rivalry generation after generation after generation. And that's really the thing about sibling rivalry, whether sometimes funny and sometimes serious. That never-ending tale that's enacted by my family and your family across generations really isn't about one family in one particular time or place. It's really the story of every family. It's the story of the human family. And so the story is not something that happens once upon a time. It's a story that happens all the time. Because the story of siblings getting along together is our story. Theologian Walter Brueggemann calls it the brother problem. Perhaps better stated, the sibling problem. That is, of course, throughout history, the struggle of all of us, brothers and sisters, to live well together, to live in peace and harmony as part of God's human family. You don't have to have had a sibling. You simply have had to work with colleagues or my favorite, collaborate on a project. 
maybe even attempted to discern consensus on a church committee. I think all you have to do is watch three minutes of C-SPAN. That will tell you everything you need to know. <laughs> Rob Bell puts it lightly when he says, frankly, there is no cool, hip planet where all of the emotionally mature people gather together and get along in perfect harmony. Living together is hard. And that's exactly where the story meets us in Genesis 4. We find two of the first siblings, human siblings Cain and Abel, embroiled in conflict. The story tells us that Cain's a farmer and Abel is a shepherd, but that's really only the dis where the distinctions stop between the two brothers. Both of the brothers work hard. Both bring their best. Both are faithful. Both turn in their commit card on time. <laughs> and yet, for some unknown reason, God looks favorably on Abel's offering and not on Cain's. We aren't told why. There have been lots of speculations and interpretive gymnastics by scholars to figure out what the reason might be. Some have wondered maybe it's because Cain brought grain and Abel brought meat. God clearly prefers barbecue, they say. There are some of you in this sanctuary who believe that that is true. But others have wondered on a more serious note, perhaps, if the problem was not the gifts offered, but instead the giver. John Calvin guessed that maybe Cain's heart wasn't in the right place. Sure, Cain brought his offering to God, but inside he didn't really mean it. But the text doesn't say that. In the face of each wondering, each plausibility, the story, as is also the case often with life, is silent. And that's one of the things about the text that's hard to reconcile. We want there to be a reason, to be an explanation. We don't want to live in a world where love and life, gifts and tragedies are random in any way. We want life and faith and love and relationship to be explained by equations. Eat your vegetables, live forever. Follow the rules, do your homework, and everything will work out. And sometimes that story happens in light ways. And then sometimes that story happens in more serious ways. The truth is that life doesn't treat us all the same. And when there is a difference, often explanations are silent. And so the story said God favors Abel's offering over Cain's. There's no reason given, no answer offered. Instead, the mystery of life and the freedom of God remain intact. what happens next that begins to propel the story forward in a new way. <clears throat> Angry and resentful about the cards that he's been dealt, Cain murders his brother. Sibling turns against fellow sibling, and it's the first moment of death in God's creation for the God who above all else wills life. But the story won't even dwell too long there. Instead, the story will quickly move beyond the moment of murder to the conversation that follows between God and Cain 
in which God asked Cain some very important questions. And as a friend of mine wisely always says, we should always sit up and pay attention when God is asking questions. God says to Cain, where is your brother? And Cain replies, I don't know. What am I, my brother's keeper? Am I supposed to keep track of him wherever he goes to worry about his problems? I have enough problems of my own. Is he my responsibility? And of course, what Cain is really saying is your God. Isn't that your responsibility? In the Bible, to be someone's keeper, the Hebrew word for keeper is to support and aid and protect. It means to converse with someone day and night. To be someone's keeper is the kind of person that you could call at any time of day. It means to stay awake like the watchman in the tower, to stay awake to somebody else's sufferings, their joys and their pains and their loves. It means to know something about someone beyond their name or where they went to school or what hometown they grew up in. It means to know someone in a way is to know who they are, their circumstances, to watch out for them, to care about what happens to them, to care about their thriving. And in part, Cain is right. He's not being very nice about it. But to be a keeper is God's job. God is our keeper, yours and mine. You'll hear it throughout scripture. Many of you may know by heart the beloved Psalm 121. It's one of my favorites. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day or by noon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. The Lord will keep your life. You're going in and you're coming out. God's relationship with us is not casual. Rather, God knows you and me intimately, our joys, our loves, our sufferings, our pains, and watches out for us. And it's tempting, I think, to leave that kind of care and responsibility, because it's a lot, only to God. The narrative that I sometimes want to tell myself that I think that America tells the rest of us is that true freedom means not having to answer or be responsible to anyone else. I'm, I'm free because I'm responsible to myself alone. But scripture really tells us a different kind of story. A story with two parts. Cain is right, God is our keeper. God watches out for us, cares for us, looks over us. But that's only half of the equation. God's question to Cain, where is your brother? Tells us that we are our siblings keeper too. That because all of us belong to God, that we too belong to one another. And we cannot separate our destinies from one another. In part because we are siblings of a human family. But for scripture, it's even more than that. That we are keepers of one another is rooted in the very being of God. 
Just a few chapters earlier at the beginning of Genesis, the text reads, Let us make humankind in our image to be like us. The plural has stopped a lot of scholars in their tracks. But perhaps one way of thinking about it is that the R in the statement refers back to the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Which means that if we're created in the image of God, and God is not an isolated being, but instead a relationship, that we too are called to live in God's image in such a way. We are God's image bearers in the world. Those who belong to God and who also have a responsibility, as in God's inner being, to belong to one another. God's question to Cain. And what the text teaches us is this. Sin attempts to deny our fundamental interrelatedness. To tell us that we should care only about ourselves. About my church, my family, my kids, my tribe, my well-being alone. But God wants us to risk something greater. God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, divine relationship, creator, redeemer, sustainer, who has risked enough to cast God's lot with every single one of us, dares to invite us human beings to cast our lots with one another. It's both the deeply good news and also the challenging task. That the siblings for whom we must care for are not just those whom we are biologically related, or even the people immediately around us, but the entirely large and sometimes unruly human family for which we are both burdened and blessed to descend. Each member of this family is our sibling, and none, therefore, are we free to abandon. This summer, I went to see the movie about Fred Rogers, lovingly known to most of us as Mr. Rogers. Perhaps some of you saw the movie, too. If you didn't, I would commend it to you. It's wonderful. And it's, of course, the beautiful telling of the life of that Presbyterian minister, who each week entered the TV screens as well as the hearts of children and, I think, adults by slipping off his coat and putting on that cardigan famously knitted by his mother, all the while singing that song. I bet most of us can sing it by heart. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? I've always wanted a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you please be my neighbor? For 912 episodes, Mr. Rogers invited us to be his neighbor. And no matter how old we get, no matter how old I get, that question still touches my heart. I think part of the reason, part of the magic of Mr. Rogers saying, won't you be my neighbor? Is that he touches that place in us that recognizes 
in some fundamental way that we are all neighbors, all siblings, that we are all a part of God's human family, and therefore called to keep one another. In an interview he gave about the show, Fred Rogers said, he said, we live in a world in which we need to learn to share responsibility. It's easy to say, not my child, not my community, not my world, not my problem. Then there are those who see human need and respond. And I consider those people my heroes. In the making of the film, Fred's wife said, don't make Fred out to be a saint. He's not a saint. He wasn't a saint. He's just an ordinary human being who believed in the struggle for grace, that all human beings belong to one another, that we would labor for grace. That's what we do. When the world tempts us to root for ourselves, to stick to our own kind, to tune out the cries of those around the world, that we labor like Fred Rogers for grace. Won't you be my neighbor? For the good news of the gospel is that God invites us to live with one another in hope and the sure conviction that though the story of human siblings often seems that it hasn't changed very much, that by the love and grace of God, it still can. All thanks be to God. Amen.